0: to get up, get out, and do something. Virtual Voter Rally was designed to encourage people to vote in the 2020 general election. We have seen the statistics of voter turnout from past elections, and we also have heard about the unjust obstacles being created to discourage and prevent underrepresented communities and populations from voting. Even with the aforementioned, we know and still believe in the power of the vote. And that's why it is imperative that we unite, and encourage everyone to march to the polls. It is no longer just our right. It is now our obligation. Join us as we are joined by our guests to get up, get out, and do something during this virtual voter rally, which originally aired on October 24th, 2020. There's always tension on college campuses, especially during moments of election. And I think it's, I think it's, Different this year, given that we are in this socially distanced space. So what have, what are some things that your campuses or that your institutions have been doing to one, um, make sure that the students are remaining active within this political pandemic, if you will, Um, and then what maybe have your individual departments done in terms of outreach to make sure students are engaged, they are registered, and they are going to vote?
1: I, I can speak more so from our campus because I can't say that our individual office um, has done just a, a great deal because we don't do any real programming in our office. But in student affairs, they have had some different things to come in. I know that um, over the weekend, they had a day where our like multicultural office where they um, provided rise to the polls for our students and just did a day long getting students to volunteer with that and engage in that way. Different student groups, including like student government, they were focused on registration. Um, and I know also our, some of our, our Greeks, NPHC specific Greeks and Black Student Association they have signed up to be poll workers. So I'm really excited that they're taking on that because we, we see all the things in the news about a need for younger students to be polling workers. So I know that they're doing that. And I know that our multicultural area, inclusiveness area and um, the counseling center have paired up to have some dialogues surrounding the election. So I think I'm really appreciative that they're partnering with the counseling center and that there's gonna be a lot of, you know just general well-being things. So those are some of the things that I know are happening on our campus.
2: On our campus, we have a unique um, situation being that we're hosting the last presidential debate. And so that has not only heightened awareness, but it's also heightened feelings. Um, SGA and other student organizations have done uh, voter registration and things of of that nature. Um, One of my roles is that I'm also over multicultural affairs and whatnot. And so as a part of my role in the larger committee, we presented diversity week. And the theme for the week was the civility of discourse. Because one of the things that we were finding out, um, people don't know how to talk to each other, whether it's peers or even our students. And what I noticed that one of the biggest challenges that we had across the board was communication. And people think, well, if you're on side A or side B, then you hate the opposite side and that's not the case. People think if you have a conversation that you're trying to convert me or convince me that I'm wrong. And it's no, it's none of that. It's literally a conversation. Um, Separating ideologies and pedagogies and whatnot from, hey, that's a human. I need for you to dial it back. And having a conversation is not screaming or yelling. It is a dialogue and yes, someone may say something that causes you to literally be completely stirred and upset. How do you navigate that? How do you not shut down? Um, It's interesting. We have students who are very vocal and on both sides. And then we have students who have totally shut down. Part of it is because of the pandemic, Um, because of everything that transpired this summer with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amaya Bradbury, all of this, Black students are like, I can't take it anymore. And so getting them to build a level of resilience and that while this seems like the worst time in the world to you, we've been through this before. As a culture and a people, we've seen this before in one way, in one form or another. And so how do you build resilience? How do you get and teach students to use their voice, um, and to use their voice in an effective manner. Our college Republicans and um, college Democrats um, did a Zoom uh, debate, and it was actually really interesting. They told the history of their parties. They were asked very specific questions along the line that the presidents and the vice presidents um, have answered. And it got a little heated, but it was also about, you can state your point and be civil, not call anybody out and things of that nature. So because we are hosting, I think we've ramped it up with what we're doing. Counseling has certainly been on on hand for not only Zoom fatigue, but also just trying to navigate things. Part one of my other jobs, the scholarship program, we've told students, you can come to the building because they've been under the pressure. Well, you said we had to stay in our room. Who said that? Nobody said that. Come over to the building, spread out. You can't be on top of each other, but we've got room for you to study. Um, It's funny, but they will, it's weird. We have a no visitor policy, which students were like, oh, you met other people on campus. I was like, is that a visitor? Do they live with you? Um, They'll have visitors and break that residence hall rule, but you won't come out of your room. go to the calf, get something to eat, walk around campus. And it's they're like, oh, okay. So it's been, in some instances, very rudimentary of, hey, do the basic stuff, take care of yourself, come do yoga on the lawn or do a Zoom yoga or what have you, they're, and it's hard because they don't, they're just like, well, I'm stuck, I gotta be here and you can do more things and getting them to tune in is challenging.
3: Has there been any, um, any initiatives around getting your, your men of color on campus involved in the political process, uh, specifically around uh, voting, voting initiatives?
2: We have some through our, um, our Black Student Association. They are a really strong entity Our Greeks are very small and just don't have that push or drive. I know that they've done some events, but it's one of those things I haven't even heard about it. I you know, I might see it in passing on Instagram. And I would say at my institution, black men are are truly an endangered species. And I think across the board in higher ed, black men are an endangered species for whatever reason. I mean, there's everything from socioeconomic status and not knowing how to navigate cultural situations, not having the support. But in my instance, my students have the support, but yet I've heard more often than not, well, I didn't know who to go to. I didn't know what to do. So we have this very unique gap of, I have colleagues all over who are willing to support students of color in particular, Black male initiatives, and you can't get the buy-in from students.
1: Um, I'll say for my institution, um, I know that I mentioned earlier about getting the students to become polling workers. That's actually led by one of the Black fraternities. The Omegas are leading that initiative. And so they're really engaged with that and wanting to get and see um, their community be supported, and they're getting their fellow students to sign on. They're partnering with groups like... Um, the BSA on campus to get their fellow undergrad and, and classmates and peers to, to sign on to become polling workers. So I think that from my knowledge, that's one of the strongest efforts that is led by Black men um, on our campus to, to get engaged with that, that voting process. So
0: what would you say are some of the major impacts of this election on higher education or more specifically thinking of the communities that your institutions are within yeah i I mean i think here in texas like
1: we specifically in tarrant county where i live we have a number of judges who are being elected um that's that's one of the i went to vote today and that is most definitely one of the main positions the most openings of elected officials that we were voting for on my ballot and I think that has a direct correlation to our communities too and that's what I know a lot of the NPHC sororities and fraternities in our area have been pushing around like my uh, my organization we hosted candidate forums we partnered with the black churches um uh, and we still have more things happening this weekend with the black churches around mobilization there's been things with some of the the local high schools So I think that people really are understanding the importance of this election beyond just the federal election and understanding the state and local things that are happening um, and having opportunities to think about how do we want to hold elected officials accountable moving past November 3rd. I think that there has been a call from some of the, the faith community as well as just the overall Black community, the NACP, all these different organizations who... I think that we're seeing the value in collaboration and knowing that we're, we're stronger together and that we have to move forward together in a lot of ways. I, and as far as my institution being connected to that, I think that for the people who work and live and surround our community, we know that as we want to recruit and, and ret- not only recruit, we want to recruit and retain More a more diverse workforce that they also have to come live and exist in this space in the city. And so we have to do things that will Be supportive of a more diverse culture that will lead to more of a sense of belonging and inclusion for the people who we have who, who are our employees, but also our students who are on our campus so I think mine would
2: be three areas. It would be access, communication, and engagement, access to information, um, access and better understanding. And then that flows right into communication because the one thing that we've seen, um, we have a very diverse city in that we have a city of a lot of um, immigrants and, and undocumented individuals who, one, are afraid to take the census. Um, who aren't filling out taxes, and then the complications with trying to vote—it—it it is there is just multiple layers. And then you have within our own culture, I don't want so and so tracking me down because then they'll know this, this, and this about me, and they'll find this, and I may not get my benefits. Um, communication and getting people to understand um, very basic contexts and situations like the importance of the census, um, communication, why you need to vote, and that, well, they're going to find all this personal information out about me. No, not really, because it's anonymous. And engagement, pulling people in. I think the one thing I see, people are partnering partnering here and there, but as a collective unit, I, it makes so much more sense to me that we do it together as opposed to separate. Mm-hmm. And so... I haven't necessarily heard a lot of people collaborating, mainly in part because of the pandemic, but also because I feel like we've I've been in a bit of a bubble because we are hosting the debate and there's been so much focus on preparing the campus, preparing the students, preparing faculty and staff, and also navigating um, our president's response to. Um, the racial injustices over campus, which literally blew up in June. Um, Navigating that and preparing the campus to just simply function um, has been challenging. Uh, This debate has offered people a lot of jobs and a lot of information and things of that nature. But I still think about in general, who we vote for, local, federal, Who's going to provide the most funding for access and pathways to a level of education, not always higher education, not always a two-year or four-year, but a trade or something so that you can can feed your families? Because it's not likely that they will ever raise minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So then it's about communication. How is this information communicated? From running a scholarship program, we have tried with adults, Hey, nominate your students. I have one school that's nominated two people. The scholarship is worth almost $200,000. You could also accept
3: applications. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged, but you know, I'll, I'll go back to school for a free degree. I,
2: I can fill my whole program because all my friends are like, um, y'all take non-traditional students.
3: If there's a no. wait list, you let me know.
2: Most certainly. Everybody's <laughs> like, I'll come back. i get a second undergrad. Saying. It's, it's an extraordinary opportunity where we've tr- tried to provide access to students who are in the Metropolitan Nashville Public Schools. But you have students who are coming from predominantly Black and Hispanic institutions to a very predominantly white institution. There's a culture shock. And I tell them that. And when they go through homecoming, they're like, it's not like TSU, no, 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 we have no fried, no, you will not get a fried fish sandwich, but in October, you know where to go get that fried fish sandwich. In February, when we have homecoming, we have Auntie Anne's and fresh guacamole and uh, queso at homecoming, whole new world, but you get to put your feet in both worlds. And it's just, while it's access, it's still hard and people want everybody to get a full ride and even the students I have, some of them take advantage of it and do really well. Others don't. And it's about funding and that starts with K through 12. And this is my personal opinion, not my institution's, but that stack of changes that they wanted to do to Title IX, there there were things that were much more pressing than changing a 2000 page document for Title IX. Mm -hmm. There are kids who don't have internet access or it's slow. They don't have laptops. They only have to check in every now and then. So how are we gonna manage this, this deficit? There's already what's called a summer melt well, now we got fall, melt, and possibly spring melt because parents love them to death. But my mother was a teacher. I would not I would be miserable. Love her to death. She played no games. I don't want her to be my tutor. No, ma'am, no, sir. And that's someone who has a parent who's able to do it. If I had a child and they had to do that new math. The new math. <laughs> baby. Um. We're going to, have to find a tutor. Because mommy can't do that. That where you add it up on this line and then you draw a diagonal and you make a... Oh, no. Nah, we,
3: we I, I, I have to YouTube it, I and, have to YouTube it, it or something.
1: <laughs> it won't
2: be There's not something.
3: enough
1: YouTube <laughs> for me. But <laughs> I, think that, I think as you say that, I think people can't sleep on the school board elections. I think that... Absolutely. Like Absolutely. watching the school board members through this pandemic and how different school board members have handled it and what they have placed value on, has been disturbing in many ways i think that there are some districts and i and coming from higher ed i fully understand that it's it's been a crapshoot you know you don't really know anything about this pandemic none of us were prepared for it but i do think that some elected officials have handled it much better than others some have had a complete disregard specifically for black and brown communities and and the well-being of folks and so i think that even as we go to the polls, we really need to show up for those elections too, because it has a direct impact on you know our, our schools being funded and and what type of resources we get during pandemics like this.
3: And, and to your point, Doctor Boy, I, you know from a higher ed perspective, if if local officials and state officials are uh, conducting themselves in a particular manner, then nine times out of ten they have a direct line of oversight over a lot of the board of visitors and board of directors and board of trustee groups Mm -hmm. for public institutions and even some private institutions that depend on a great deal of resources from state and local municipalities. So even if uh, folks don't necessarily think well I don't have any children in K through 12 or I'm a college student at a a large state research institution, that doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you because those elected officials will likely have some kind of impact and influence over your curriculum, over uh, your financial aid funding, over what type of representation that you have as a student body amongst that board of trustees, board of directors, board of visitors uh, group.
1: Even If you think about diversity education, there's a a direct attack happening right now uh, under the Administration
3: and and the interesting piece in, in higher ed, you have a lot of PWIs who are trying to now capitalize on diversity training. I'm like, man, where, where, I need the HBCUs to get in that game and get some and get some of those resources because if you want diversity training, then you need a diverse a, a diverse level of experience as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: I, well, yeah. And you talked about. The purse strings and at the local level, and who we're voting for as our representatives in Congress and the Senate and whatnot. And I won't name the state, but you see it flagship institutions get the lion's share.
3: Absolutely. And then
2: smaller or mid sized institutions are talking about furloughs. And what is challenging to me, and granted, I don't know the whole story. But if the flagship institution has a significantly strong endowment, then why would you give them, continue to give them the lion's share when they can probably take some back? When you have mid-sized institutions that are trying to serve a more local and regional uh, clientele, so to speak, they have to furlough, like this affects our livelihood. And so if you don't have higher ed, then we can't do our outreach programs to the high schools or even the community centers or the K through 12, we can't do any of that because now, because money is so tight and people have cut budgets, it's crazy, but the rich continue to attain money and those that were kind of mid-range or suffering will continue to suffer because the money is not flowing. And so I, I am grateful we have a new director of schools here which is our superintendent She's hustling. I mean, she's really trying and she's getting it from both ways. Kids need to go back. Well, kids can't because you have this large population of Black and Brown children who really don't need to be in school just yet and they're most susceptible to COVID. So she has to navigate that. And she's trying to maximize partnerships with our local community colleges and things like that. So it's not easy. But it's again, it's about voting those people into those spots. And at the higher level, who gets money for state institutions? I work at a private.
3: Hmm? And and to your point, as far as who gets money, those uh, legislators that are uh, overseeing those resources likely are giving the money to the institutions that they are alums of they're giving the money to their alma mater so when you say flagship institutions get the lion's share yeah that's because most of your state delegate state representatives attended one of the two or three flagship schools within your state
1: but if you in it like you mentioned earlier if you think about some of the states that have border regions that are covering the system um and the governor is appointing people then you you it's, it's all tied into Absolutely. the overall system that we're fighting against in many ways. And I think somebody... You mentioned HBCUs earlier, and a lot of them, if they're like land-grant institutions and they're feeding into some of these larger state systems, the the, the fun, funneling of funds is just not happening the way that our institutions need, need it to happen. But yeah. It's, it's something. I'll say that. But I, I also... Now, this is probably going to have me going down a different path. But I think about like just the Department of Education and the the programs that we do have that have been working for a long time, like our TRIO programs mm-hmm. um, and some of the funding that we, we need new leadership in those areas of like the Department of Ed and all that who will actually understand these things differently. Um, and probably they should be
3: educators. I, yeah, think. I think it could be a <laughs> <spark>. some, some <laughs> kind of experience, you know, like some yeah. kind of educational yeah. experience. I just believe God is going to do a new thing. <laughs> like, a min- a, like a basic minimum requirement, you know what I mean? Right, no, for real. <laughs>
0: yeah. I
1: think, but I think at the same time, I think the same thing happens in higher ed and K 12, where we're having decisions being made and it's not necessarily including the voices of those who will be implementing the things. Yeah. Um and I, I again, I think a lot of this goes back to the people that we elect to be over this. I know some of these things are far beyond, but again, if you're thinking about for some of these boards of trustees, they're also hiring and firing our our presidents and chancellors, right? So if you're at a state school where your board is over that, it's still going back to you voting in that state election. So I know the private institutions, which we're both know that's different, but there there's still a definite but th-
3: those appointed board of trustees at private institutions are appointed by presidents that have pulled within that region so it's all interconnected
2: yeah. <laughs> we yeah. had a huge issue and it's funny because i'm over multi- multicultural learning and experience people send the questions to me and i'm like uh-oh oh, yeah that's over my pay grade i will pass that on but we have board of trustees who are involved with Core Civic, which is institutionalized prisons. And the students are hot, like students and alumni are on fire. And they're like, what are you gonna do? I said, uh, my suggestion is you go up the hill because, I, one, I, I, I have no social capital in that context to navigate that. That is because it is a board of trustees situation that is dealt with on a level that far exceeds my pay grade. I said, I can point you in the right direction. The president said he's willing to talk about it, but as for me and mine, we can't do anything. All I can tell you to do is that if you don't make headway in that context of talking, what other ways can you work to create a better system or better circumstances outside of that one particular issue? I said, I don't know if you can People have been calling for, people often call for board of trustees or individuals to be removed, not just from my institution, but any institution. It's extremely hard to do, especially at a private institution. So to some extent, you have to figure out where else can you put your energy and your investment? Because sometimes that just don't work because whatever is tied into it, mainly money.
1: And I think with that too, I think this is not like, election voting, but even getting engaged with our alumni societies and holding people accountable in that way, too, because I think alums have a different level of voice and agency once you're outside the institution, too. I think a lot of people come to the people who work there like, girl, what's going on? You're an alum. You know, you you, you can ask these same questions. You don't necessarily have to ask me, but you can ask these questions of individuals um, on our campus who... I just think accountability across the board, like elected officials at the institution, wherever, I think that we have to engage in in what that looks like. Um, I think it would be, I think it's hard sometimes as people who work at an institution to, you don't always live in the same city. You don't always just look and view some, especially if you're in a college town or something, you may just feel like I'm here to work. But I think thinking beyond us just working there, because our well-being is still, even if we don't like it, it's really attached to where we work too. Like if we aren't well in the workplace, it's going to impact home. So we have to figure out how to connect the two in some way to, to focus on our well-being. And I will say it's been a very tough year, specifically for black folks. Like there's there's just no way around it. And black folks in higher ed coming back after the summer of the protests, racial injustice, continual, continual watching people be murdered by the police and you're dealing with all these different systems. And I think that even for us as employees, oftentimes we're left out of that because we're supposed to be caring for the students. And then we're broken ourselves and we we can't really function at that rate, but we're still supposed to help care for students. It's a catch 22 if you ask me, but.
0: Tired, black people. are Tired. tired.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's okay too to let our institutions know. I know we've had a lot of conversations at our institution about
0: how black folks are tired. tired. Like, I, re- I remember at, a, at uh, a conference that we all were at, Incor. there was a conference, uh, there was a workshop that said, I'm effing tired. And it was taught by an uh, older white woman who was a social worker. And it was geared towards those from marginalized populations who are mm-hmm. feeling the racial fatigue and how she said in the session, she said, and white people just don't get it. Mm. I was like, okay, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> right, but right. understanding that we are just, we're tired. Yeah, and but so, I
1: think that's why we should get to create spaces for ourselves. Like uh, mm. it's a group of black women on our campus. We have a group called Breathing Room and it's really good for us because we get to come and just be as black women. Mm. And then some of us have put a weekly meeting on our calendar where we're doing a check-in with one another, make it if you can, but it's just a space for us to connect as Black women where I don't have to come in and explain why I'm like, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. It's necessary, though. It is necessary. And Very necessary. But it
1: so, is, oh, Go, go ahead.
2: ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's been extremely hard to explain to white counterparts the level of exhaustion. So we did these listening sessions after everything blew up and our president would not say we won't tolerate racism or bigotry. I facilitated 17 of those, 17 of the 18. And I was just like, oh God, I need my own listening session but don't nobody wanna hear me cause I know where bodies lie. But it's, and then I've struggled with, there's some people we have these listening sessions and in no disrespect to them, but they're like, I feel good. I love my coworkers. And these are black people. And I was like, you're not tired? You you're not tired. You're not tired by any you don't think we have things to fix. And so I get caught up on, hmm, who would be in that breathing room with me? I might be by myself. I mean, I know I wouldn't, but there's some people who I think would come in and be like, it's not that bad, John. I might. Like, It is. We've had a rough summer and as higher ed professionals who are literally on the front lines who deal with students day in and day out, that we've got to help them navigate, we have to figure out how to navigate on our own and still have our own feelings. But I can remember as a facilitator, I had colleagues who would get in these listening sessions and refuse to talk.
3: Mm.
2: I'm tired. So then... I gotta say something. I have to, you know, I have to push the narrative along. There's some people who won't talk. There's some people who would say, but it's all good. I mean, I love my department. We get along well. And
3: mm-hmm.
2: other people who are angry who didn't who had coworkers who didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then people wanna have an attitude because somebody black might come to work. And I'm like, yeah, because we watched the news last night and this morning. And two more black people have been shot, in particular, two more black men. And for those of us with friends and you know significant others or siblings or cousins, I'm calling my brother and I'm like, uh, "You good?" Mm-hmm. I'm looking out for my cousin. Like Dylan is like six foot six and got dreads. He's super smart. He got a degree in biology, but still don't nobody cares a bullet doesn't know that you know and checking in with friends because a bullet doesn't know how many degrees you have or what kind of father you are or godfather or husband or whatever it just doesn't matter and to get them to understand
1: but i think too i think we i think we have to give ourselves some grace to allow ourselves to feel too and to be like i So in Fort Worth, Tatiana Jefferson was murdered by a Fort Worth police officer. And I was like, I literally can't do this. Like I cannot go to work tomorrow for so many reasons. It was just like, I was at my, my max and I knew that it wasn't going to be the best thing for me. And I, and I still haven't figured all that out at all. Like, I don't know how to give myself grace in most cases, but it's something I'm hoping I can figure out. So if y'all know, y'all let me know. Cause that's my hope that yeah because i it's
0: tough i'm just gonna say that
3: november 3rd change gotta come
0: yeah you're right and quickly and i think and, and i in closing right i just want to say that november 3rd isn't the end of the battle that is when right. we have to start fighting even harder mm-hmm. regardless of the outcome like we can't just say oh i did my part i voted now we just gotta wait four years no after you put in the work at the poll then we got to put in work in the streets in the communities in our institutions in our churches in our organizations make that go from city to city state to state and then soon we should see something from seed to shining seed but until we put in the work we won't be able to see what we desire for these united states of america